Hello and welcome to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's Eye Critical Care Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Ranjit Deshpande. Today, we have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Mark D. Sipol about anticoagulant reversal. Dr. Sipol is Director of the Outcomes Research and Surgical Service Line at Christiana Care Health System. He presented at the 48th Critical Care Congress on this topic, and we are happy to have him with us today. Welcome. Thank you, Ranjit. So recently, you gave a presentation titled, What's New in Anticoagulant Reversal? Can you talk a little bit about this talk? Sure. Yeah, I think probably the, the, the hottest, newest topic around this, uh, around anticoagulation reversal is how to deal with the, uh, the direct oral anticoagulants or the DOACs and how to reverse them. I think that, in my mind, there is no question that our biggest clinical challenges around this uh, issue, uh, we, we don't really have a great handle on who needs urgent reversal. Um, when patients come in bleeding, we're very good, of course, at stopping the drug. Uh, I think we are, are not quite at the sweet spot of knowing who will benefit from urgent reversal and who doesn't need urgent reversal. Uh, because these uh, new medications are obviously expensive, and they expose patients to thrombophilia, i.e. strokes and, and heart attacks. And I think the other challenge that we're, we're faced with, and again, very little to no evidence to guide us, is when to resume anticoagulation. These patients who come in with uh, bleeding who are on a anticoagulant, either warfarin or pixaban or uh, any of the other uh, DOACs, they, um, they're on these medications for a reason, because they have a, a risk of a stroke or, or heart, heart attack. So we stop these medications, and we have to remember that it's important to resume them in a timely fashion, yeah, and that, that's challenging as well. People, uh, they don't die of re-bleeding. They die of strokes and heart, heart attacks because we don't resume in a timely fashion. So that easily, in my mind, those are the two issues, knowing who will benefit from urgent reversal and when to resume. Excellent. So when to resume is a, is a very, very important question. I around mostly in the surgical ICU, so we see a lot of trauma patients, you know, TBI patients. We see especially the older or the elderly population who are on NOACs. Pretty much everyone nowadays is on sure. NOACs. Um, the question arises is which patient, let's say the patient is on no acts for AFib or stroke prophylaxis and he has AFib or has DVTs or sure. history of PE, which patient population would you would you think uh, require the, the soonest or the quickest restarting yeah. of, of these medications? Yeah, and there's actually more, I think, objective evidence to, to gauge how, how thrombophilic someone is uh, as, uh, as opposed to trying to figure out if their bleed's going to get worse or not worse. Um, and, of course, that's going to be based on what the injury was, when they took their last dose, uh, uh, their, their kidney function, et cetera. But back to gauging thrombophilia, we have pretty good ways to do that. The most common thing we do is, is do a CHADS-2 VAS score on a non-valvular atrial fibrillation patient. And so you can, you can, divide, you can parse them out into 
high, medium, and low thromboembolic risk. And, of course, those with the highest risk, you would like to resume the soonest. The, uh, so so that, that is somewhat helpful with uh, basically what gets you in the high-risk category. Uh, you know, I, I generally will ask three questions. Do they have a high chance mask? Have they had a VTE within three months? And do they have a mechanical valve and, most importantly, a mitral valve? Mm-hmm. If, if you touch one of those three, if you're one of those three, we're going we're gonna to resume your anticoagulation fairly quickly because their stroke which is much higher. The other patients you can kind of take a deep breath and, and, and wait, uh, you know, anywhere from two to four weeks or so. And I think that the population that I think is very challenging is the chronic subdural patient. Uh, the neurosurgeons, uh, they're kind of messy. I mean, they have, they have membranes. They evacuate the, the chronic blood. They often have post, some post-operative uh, uh, bleeding. As you know, sometimes their post-op scan looks worse than their pre-op scan. Uh, so uh, that's that's a group that we respect a lot, and we we uh, we have developed a guideline for resumption at our shop. Again, based basically on expert consensus, there's no real data to drive this, but we uh, and it's it's probably I'd say the most uh, used guideline on our trauma service is when to resume anticoagulation. Excellent. Um, and then I think uh, the the you know the other hot topic right now of course is uh, there's a brand new drug approved for uh, anti-10A reversal uh, at Nexonet Alpha and um, that is that final report of their of their phase 3 trial just appeared in New England Journal of Medicine so uh, people have been using a lot of places have been using prothrombin concentrates and they, they seem to be effective in the in the studies that that, that we we've, we've looked at um, and so that's kind of what they're used to using so it, it will uh, we'll have to see how quickly and well uh, adopted uh, at nextnet's going to be and I think very much to the FDA's and the 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 manufacturers credit they've agreed to do a phase four trial well they are going to compare their drug to your hospital's quote usual care for reversing those patients, and the usual care may be just stopping the anti ten A inhibitor, or giving a four factor PCC, or giving an activated PCC. Uh, so I, I think that that phase four trial will be uh, will be helpful, and I'm, I'm very happy to see that it's going to take place. So uh, the question that comes to my mind while I'm running in the unit is. What's the risk of thrombosis when I'm acutely reversing mm-hmm. these patients? They've been on these medications for some time yeah. for some particular reason. And when I give them, you know, four-factor mm-hmm. PCC or these newer drugs, the trauma patient, as we all know, is a hyper is in a hypercoagulable state. Sure, right? sure. So how does that figure into uh, decision-making? Yeah, that's a, that, that's a really good uh, question. The, uh, the rates in the studies... The, and of course, you know, a, a thrombotic event uh, a- after you stop the drug and reversed is obviously something that's important to track. The um, the rates are anywhere from five to eighteen, twenty percent. And the one of the issues with the very with the the first phase of the uh, 
of the Dexanet trials that they had an 18% thromboembolic uh, uh, complication rate. And that, that concerned people. But as time went on and they put more and more patients in their study and they resumed anticoagulation more frequently, that rate went down. And, and it was down to 10% at the, at the last report. And so um, we, we don't like to see rates much above that. Uh, and then the other question I often have asked, you know, when I give, give one of these talks is um, if it's an event that's happened two, three, four weeks after you've given the reversal, is it really due to the reversal agent? And that, that's hard to say because, as you, as you know, we don't often identify our, some of our thromboembolic rates right away, you know. So, uh, you know, of course, that's going to depend, like we said before, on their, their how thrombophilic that patient is. And, again, that goes back to Chad's 2 vas scoring and that sort of thing. So we, we will calculate that at the bedside and try to put them in a risk category uh, to, to help us guide that. But the studies say that thrombotic complications are, you know, kind of vary between 5 and uh, 18%. The, um, the other question that comes to my mind is um, most of these patients are pretty much every trauma patient. Sure. Unless he or she or any patient in the ICU. I'm going to just rephrase this. So the question that comes to my mind is when you have patients in the ICU, we use DVT prophylaxis for pretty much everyone, unless there's an absolute contraindication to it. Um, how does that play in along with, um, you know, aspirin-like drugs uh, mm -hmm. when you're talking about NOACs in the ICU population? Yeah, yeah. That's, that's a good question. We, um, you know, uh, therapeutic anticoagulation to me is a very different animal from prophylactic anticoagulation. Uh, but we will, we, we have, of course, just like you do and everybody else says we have a guideline for when you should start your your uh, your prophylaxis uh, post injury and and we virtually start it as soon as the bleeding is stopped and I'm sure your shop is the same way so we've been very aggressive with that and we don't really consider that a full anticoagulation prophylaxis so we really I shouldn't say ignore but we you know when we stop their their DOAC and we maybe gave them a reversal agent the next day we may give them their low molecular heparin you know. Uh, again, uh, not treatment doses, but prophylactic doses. Excellent. That's that's yeah. exactly what I uh, what we yeah. do. Yeah. And the reason I asked you this question is this question comes up on yeah. rounds pretty much every yeah. time we have a patient who's been taking NOAG before. Right. Um, so um, you know, my my, my interest uh, in these NOACs is how do you, in your practice or from your research, monitor these drugs? Is there a role mm -hmm. for any point of care testing? Or uh, is it just activated PTT yeah. or uh, factor 10A levels? Yeah, we just we just <coughs> finished a session uh, where uh, Bob Gosling, who is by far and away the world's expert in this, uh, talked about uh, talked about testing and you know the the uh, tests that we have, you know, relatively available, you know, PT, uh, thrombin time, APTT, they can they can help you. Uh, they, they can help you say there may be drug present or, or not, but they're not, they, they cannot quantify by any means. But uh, you, you, you're exactly right. We desperately need quantitative point of care anti 10A testing. And um, the lab, you, any of our labs can tell you uh, yes, the drug's present uh, or no, the drug isn't present, and, uh, but they can't. 
uh, quantifying it is a problem. And so, you know, you wouldn't give uh, a four-factor PCC who somebody who a patient says, yeah, I take warfarin, and they come in and there and their point of care INR is 1.2. You would you wouldn't do that. So it's equivalent to that. It's a, you know if you uh, the, well in the Nexonet trial they considered therapeutic above 75 nanograms per milliliter. So they put everybody in the safety trial, but in the efficacy trial, which was about two thirds of the patients, they only they evaluated the efficacy only if they were therapeutic. So it would be the same way we practice clinically. If they're not therapeutic, you 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 probably wouldn't reverse them. You know. So yes, uh, we, uh, we we desperately need to be able to do this, and you know, at at the bedside, you know, in the trauma bay or wherever you may be. So do you feel there's a role of Rotem or TEGS in monitoring these? Yeah, that was just a question in our last session, and Dr. Uh, Gosling <laughs> emphatically said, no, <laughs> doesn't work. Um, I don't know about you, but I, th- I think we've seen, and, and I'm, I, I, we haven't analyzed this, but I, I think anecdotally we've seen a little bit tiny prolonged our time with patients on DOAX, but, but that's, that's only what we've you know, anecdotally observed. Yeah, the reason that I have these questions is, you know, I've seen a lot of different practices, uh, especially when it comes to bleeding, the mm-hmm. neurosurgeons are the most sensitive sure. about blood loss. And, you know, I, I totally get it yeah, why they sure, are. Sure. I totally get it. Uh, we've had patients who come in with aspirin with a head bleed and everyone gets platelets. Yeah. So, um, you know, how do you manage patients who are on NOACs who come into you mm-hmm. know, your, your ICU? Yeah. yeah well, <laughs> we... Uh, um, if you got a little bleed, we leave you alone. If you got a big bleed, we will probably give you four-factor PCC in our shop. And uh, you know, if we approve it, if our PNT approves it, we'll give you a Nexonet. And that's that was the very first point I made in this: is that the big bleeds, as you know, probably doesn't matter what you do, right? The little tiny bleeds. So, do I want to do I want to expose this patient to this thrombophilic uh, thrombophilia and expense? Um, so it's probably somewhere in between, and and well, for instance, when we first approved Kcentra, we said, well, you know, we're, we're just going to limit this to big life-threatening bleeds. Well, if you do that, pretty soon your drug doesn't look very good, right? Because these patients don't, the, these patients aren't going to do well no matter what you do. And the other thing we talk about when we, we do our presentation is the exclusions from these trials that got the drugs approved. The Kcentra, the four-factor PCC, Cerotis trial, had numerous exclusions. In fact, it's all the patients that we give the drug to now, right? They they l- limited the bleeds to 30-milliliter head bleeds. Um, they couldn't have surgery, you know, right away. All the patients that you <laughs> give these drugs to. And it's not just true of these drugs. It's true of any, right? It's, it, it, you know, you want the patients just sick enough so you can, so you could, uh, statistically analyze it and, and see a difference. And then as soon as the drugs approve, we give it to the whole spectrum of patients. Um, and if you limit it just to the worst patients, you're, you're, it's probably not going to uh, help. So, so we, we look at the clinical situation. We look at the size of the bleed, uh, and, and we make a d- determine. We don't have a specific guideline for that. It's kind of a clinical picture and uh, most of our group I think practices pretty similarly and uh, it's the same it's the same way with platelets you know it's the same thing 
So um, when we talk about NOAX or DOAX, uh, mm-hmm. you know, um, which are the ones that you're most worried about? Which are the ones that mm-hmm. you're like, I know I can reverse this bleed or, you know. Yeah. Well, uh, as you know, uh, dabigatran is, is different. Dabigatran is a direct thrombin inhibitor. It's an antibody that, that binds to thrombin. Uh, Adnexanet is different. It's a decoy uh, 10A. Uh, so the uh, the drug binds to that rather than uh, to the native 10A. And so the native 10A can uh, work. So they're, they're, they're all about the same in the studies. And I think the most important about this about this is that there is no question that the safety profile for DOAX is better than warfarin. That's that's important. You know that, that that's really important. I I don't I'm not sure why anybody takes warfarin anymore, quite frankly. But um, the uh, uh, the safety profile is and that's another thing we talk about when we you know when we discuss this is that uh, there's a lot of data to, to show that so. Often it's and the half life shorter. You know, the half lives are on the order of nine to to fifteen hours. The newest one, Betrixaban, does have a, about a twenty four hour half life. Uh, so uh, the first thing you do is try to figure out when they last took their drug. Hopefully someday we can actually measure their anti ten A level quickly and easily. But they're safer than warfarin. But among the the DOACs, uh, we don't necessarily fear one more than the other one. So what's the most surprising thing that you found through your research uh, in this topic? Well, we, we have a, I, I don't know if it's surprising, but what, what I think um, has struck me the most is what, what, uh, what I opened up with, you know, is we haven't found the sweet spot to, I don't think, in my opinion, to, to know when to, to do this urgent reversal uh, where our, our shop is getting better at resumption, and I think everybody is, is doing that. Um, but uh, I, I, I wouldn't call it a surprise, um, but we've done, a lot, we've done a lot of work. i tell you one thing is, that is surprising is that we don't have a bedside measurement. These drugs are not, we don't call them NOx anymore. They've been around for a while, right? And, and we, we, you know, we we don't have a way to measure, and of course that was one of the reasons you know these drugs became what they were. They said, well, we we're going to make a drug that you can take by mouth, and you don't have to measure it. And what's the first thing we want to do? We want to be able to measure it. <laughs> we want we are, we are people who like numbers. We want, right, we want right. to see numbers. Yeah, yeah we, we we want to be able. And and the, the guidelines, the SCCM uh, neuro guidelines, they state right in there: base your strategy on the clinical picture, not a lab value. Because right now there's really no good lab values to help us. And what are the criticisms surrounding this topic, and what are the challenges that you face in your daily practice? Mm-hmm. Well, the the, <laughs> the criticism I have is the expense. Mm-hmm. Um, this, uh, but these are these are very expensive uh, drugs to to develop and, and to use. So uh, we we certainly need help with that. There is no question in my mind that that's. You know, we're clinicians. We're supposed to do what's best for our patient, but we're also responsible, and we're also, you know, need to choose wisely, and to be to be fiscally responsible, and that's going to be challenging. You know, uh, in our in our P and T discussions, we've you know we've had clinicians say, 
You know, it's not our job to to make decisions based on cost. We're clinicians. Well, I think that's a little, that's not really true anymore. <laughs> you know, I would like to know a little more about what what's the direction of your research, what else is what else are you doing, you know, in this field, in DOACs. And if there's something mm-hmm. else that you're doing, I would like the audience to mm-hmm. know more so they can maybe participate, reach out to you. Sure. Well, we, we our site is going to participate in the uh, the phase four trial to look at adnexinet versus, quote, usual care uh, for uh, anti-10A bleeding. So we're looking forward to participating in that. We, we participated in the, the, the key trials that got K-Centra uh, approved. Uh, our own shop, we're, uh, about, we're trying to publish. We uh, completed not too long ago a study looking at four-factor PCC reversal for all intracranial hemorrhages, warfarin and DOAC-related. And it's interesting, the the rivaroxaban patients uh, look exactly like the warfarin patients if you give them K-Centra. And, and they do real well. I mean, we excluded patients who had to go to surgery for their head bleed, and, and two-thirds of our patients uh, had a, uh, at their second CAT scan, there's no change or even a lessening of the bleed. So it looks like it's effective. We didn't have very many apixaban patients, so it's all over the place. So we're going to continue. We'll continue to do that. We're also in the process of publishing uh, our uh, data with giving platelets to patients who come in on any platelet therapy, and uh, I can tell you that doesn't matter. Um, it doesn't make a difference in the size of their bleed or their clinical uh, outcome. So, you know, we've pretty much put that to rest at our place. Uh, we basically start your aspen right away. We don't give you dual antiplatelet therapy, and we also don't administer platelets anymore. So we're, you know, we're we're uh, in the process of trying to get both those. You're a very progressive. Yeah, we, well, we hope so. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, uh, we, you know, one of my one of my slides is, you know, uh, when we give this talk is a, a woman who had a tiny, you know, perifalcine subdural hematoma that, as you know, they never get worse. She was on ipixaban. She was fine, and she got dramatically worse, had to have a craniotomy. Uh, and then, you know, the next day you'll have a patient who got to four-factor PCC, and and their bleed got worse, you know. So it's those are only two, you know. So it's 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 humbling. It's it's humbling. There's one, there's one question that, you know, uh, this might be good for the fellows who are listening mm-hmm. in or residents. Uh, does dialysis play a role in reversal of these agents? Yeah, it does, particularly for a dibigotran, for an overdose, hemodialysis is effective, and you, and you may have to do do it more than once. Um, Bill Daggers, uh, who's easily the world's leader in this, uh, has, has shown that. So there there is a, a role for the uh, direct thrombin inhibitors for dialysis. And any other modalities other than... Um, yeah, uh, activated charcoal, if they've just, that's a lot of fun, right? Activated charcoal, if they've just taken the drug within a, a few hours. Um, of course, for warfarin, you need to remember your vitamin K because there'll be a rebound effect. And and the uh, indexidate and, and praxibine, they, they wear off, you know, within hours. So you got to get your bleeding stop, get your thing done. Uh, you, you, you have a window. Uh, redosing is a strategy, uh, particularly with uh, um, Praxibine is a, is a strategy as well. You haven't really 
seen that. Uh, I'm not sure if it's recommended for the uh, the PCCs or uh, it's not for Nexonet. It was nice talking to you, and uh, this concludes another edition of the iCritical Care Podcast. For the iCritical Care Podcast, I'm Dr. Ranjit Despande signing off. Thank you. Dr. Ranjit Despande. Dr. Ranjit Despande is an intensivist and an anesthesiologist at the Yale New Haven Hospital, YNHH. His interests include organ transplantation and point-of-care ultrasound. He currently is the director for transplant anesthesiology at YNHH. He is actively involved in resident education. Dr. Deshpande grew up in India and graduated from the BJ Medical College in Pune, India. He came to the United States to pursue a residency in anesthesiology at the University of Miami Jackson Hospital, after which he joined the Johns Hopkins University as a fellow in critical care medicine. His interests outside of medicine include spending time with his family, playing tennis, and squash. Join or renew your membership with SCCM, the only multi-professional society dedicated exclusively to the advancement of critical care. Speak with a customer service representative or visit www.sccm.org membership for more information. The iCritical Care podcast is copyrighted material and all rights are reserved. Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine or its officers or members.